What we're going to do this morning is we're going to read uh, the Gospel of Mark section in chapter 9, about verse 1 to about verse 13. And I'm going to pray, and we're going to get to work. We're going to be covering a passage today that has to do with a, a, period, a, a, a scenario in Jesus' life, an episode in Jesus' life that's traditionally called the Transfiguration, where Jesus tra- is transfigured. And some of you, uh, that might not make a lot of sense to you if you're unfamiliar with the story. Uh, in some ways, it might seem like myth, and we'll try to explain some of this in a second. So I'm going to read. The story, then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work taking a look at this uh, unique situation in Jesus' life called the Transfiguration. Verse 1 says this, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some that are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God coming, uh, the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took him, Peter, James, and John, and he led them up to a high mountain with, by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his uh, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And they appeared to him with uh, to be with him was Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents: one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he did not know what to say, for he was terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, and this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. And they were coming down, and as they were coming down the mountain, he changed them, or he charged them to tell no one what he had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come to restore all things. How then is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did not know him, or they did to him whatever they pleased as as it is written of him. God, we ask you right now that you would just give us the ability to see and understand. And again, Father, we ask you that this would not just be a lesson that we learn Bible. As good as it is to learn truths from your word, God, we realize learning truths apart from having hearts that are set on fire for Jesus just leads to another form of religion and oppression that we put upon ourselves whereby we feel even more full of despair or whereby it fuels our arrogance and our self-righteousness. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need to have our hearts and our eyes and our minds opened to his beauty. So God, this morning, do that, we pray. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be taking a look at this passage here today, and as I already mentioned, it's kind of a unique passage, and it's one of those passages that, especially sort of in our post-enlightenment world, our mindset, we tend to look at things, and we want to see things, and we want to believe things that we can see. We want to believe things that we can test and try, things that have empirical evidence, and we look at a story like this, and we think, this is impossible. Uh, it's like people don't get changed like this. People's clothes don't just miraculously become radiant white and their faces transformed. And, and the reality is, is a lot of people and skeptics could be prone to just dismiss this story as being nothing more than myth. And the problem is, is that the Bible is actually a written account of eyewitnesses, people that saw these things happen, people that were changed by these things. And so they're telling us their story. And... Uh, 
so it's a record of what actually happened. So therefore, we have to believe that it is true, that this happened. Just because we weren't there, just because we didn't see it, just because we don't see people downtown being transformed and their clothing becoming radiant white, just because we don't see those things, just because that has not happened to you, don't be so prone to dismiss it as being not true. Okay? So the story is a true, truthful story that eyewitnesses had seen, Peter, James, and John, Jesus's uh, main leaders that he had constantly had asked to accompany him. You'll see this in the New Testament. Jesus has three main leaders that accompany him majority of the time. There's another circle outside of that of 12. There were another 120 that followed Jesus outside of that. There were multitudes of other disciples. You see these different rankings or leadership structures that Jesus had established, even though all of them were equal, meaning in equal in Jesus' eyes, in God's eyes, all in desperate need of grace. Uh, Jesus had broken things down into these various leadership uh, ranks for the purpose of establishing some form of order. And you see God doing this all throughout uh, the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And so what we see is that Jesus Put, brought these guys up to this mountain and was changed. And one of the things that I really want to kind of emphasize as we look at this is there's a lot of similarities between this story and another story in the Old Testament, and most would kind of assume that I think there are similarities, and I think it's safe to assume that there are similarities between this story and what happened on, on Mount Sinai with Moses. And the story takes place somewhere around Exodus, uh, beginning around chapter 19, all the way going down about chapter 34, somewhere around there. So it's, it's a very good portion of the book of Exodus. Almost half of the book consists of this, what's called, mountaintop experience. Moses is summoned by God to go up to Mount Sinai. While he's up in Mount Sinai, he sees the glory of God. There's a lot of similarities. Some of the similarities might be this. There's a mountain. We see Moses um, seeing the radiance or the glory of God. We see a cloud that appears. We see that in this story. We hear the voice of God. We see that in this story. We also see the people are terrified. We see that in the story in the New Testament that we just read, but we also see that in uh, the Sinai experience where Moses is up there and all the people see this God and this smoke and this fire and this flame and this, all this inexplicable stuff, and they're just terrified. So there are some similarities. Even though there's similarities, even though perhaps what's happening here in the story uh, is, is intended to draw our minds back to what happened with Moses, I don't think the main point of the story is to somehow draw attention to Moses. In fact, I'm positive it's not intended to draw attention to Moses. It's really, I think, intended to draw attention to Jesus. But something specific it's intended to draw our attention to Jesus about. And there's two words, I think, that kind of tip us off to what it's intended to draw our attention to. And I think it's a good question for us to always ask. Whenever we come across stories like this in the Bible, we should always ask the question, why is this here? What's the purpose of this? That's just really common ways of reading the Bible. We need to always ask those questions because there's a point and a reason why these stories made it in the Bible. I mean, again, we've pointed this out before that Jesus did a lot of things that don't end up in the Bible. But why did this story end up in the Bible? Why did this story uh, get labeled and brought into the storyline, into the narrative by Mark? There's something very specific that I think Mark wants us to see. There's something very unique that Jesus is attempting to reveal to us. And I think basically the two words that keep coming to mind or that are really put on display in this story is power and glory. We see that, first of all, in this little section about verse 1, it says uh, that they saw the kingdom of God after it had come in power. So this kingdom of God, this 
flash forward, if you will, this episode, this episodic preview of what's to come, they get to see it. It's almost like a living trailer of events that are going to unfold at some point in the future. They get to live it for a brief moment. And what's important to note about this is that Jesus himself didn't just simply wasn't born of a virgin, and that was the first time ever coming in this world, that Jesus left the Father, that Jesus preexisted, came into this world, and added to his, the way Augustine described it, added to his divinity, humanity. Don't think that Jesus added to his humanity, divinity, meaning Jesus wasn't just some dude, some man who became God. Jesus was God who became man. you got to make sure you get that right, because otherwise what you have is sort of a reversal, something that's not biblical. It's not Jesus, a guy who can become a man. If you think that, then you will be led into false forms of doctrine and ideas that cause you to think that, you know, if you work hard enough, if you do certain things, if you chant long enough, then you as a human being can also become God. That's not the story of the Bible. But the story of the Bible is that God became man. He added to his, like I said, divinity is uh, humanity. And so Jesus comes into this world. But what I think Jesus is showing his disciples is sort of this flash forward of what will one day unfold. Power, we saw right there, and then we see this sense of glory. Now, I really want to try very briefly to try to understand the idea of, of glory. Now, I think we get the idea of what power is. Power is something... Most of us want, few of us fail to have. And if you think you have it, you either become a tyrant, right? This aggressor, this, you know, typical macho dude who thinks that you can just control or you're a power player is what you are. You're not humble. You look nothing like God. You're just a power player. So we understand what power is by way of its caricature. We see power abused. We see power misused by highest officials, but also even by dads, like me. I can do that, and there's times I have to repent before my kids, which I've done many times, and I've done this past week, uh, before my kids for abusive power plays. I've got to do that every once in a while because I abuse it. It's not good. It's not anything I'm proud of. It's the fact that power in my hands, raw power in my hands, can corrupt me just like it can corrupt you. So I think we get what power is. But glory is a little bit more elusive. The idea of glory, what does glory mean? And it's not, it's not a word that we use very often. And when we do use it, I think it's, there's a lot of ambiguity to it. So um, I'm going to give you a description that C.S. Lewis gives because I think he does a better job than I do. So here's what C.S. Lewis had to say about what glory is. Uh, and he says this in a book that he had written called um, The Weight of Glory. And here's what he said. Either glory means to me fame or it means luminosity. As, for the, as far as the first, since to be famous means to be better known than other people, the desire for fame appears to be a competitive passion. Therefore, it's more like hell than it is heaven. As for the second, who wishes to become like a kind of living electronic or electric light bulb? So this is two ways of looking at it. Look, it's either fame, you know, people granting you recognition and affirming you and identifying you, or it's like, you're luminous, but who wants to be a light bulb for all eternity? And I'd kind of agree with him in a second, but what C.S. Lewis goes on to say in this great book is he realizes that he was actually wrong the majority of his life in terms of really trying to understand what glory is. That glory really is and has to do with 
understanding something that God confers honor and appreciation and affection and affirmation on somebody. But what he describes in the book is that the problem is that oftentimes in our life, when we think of glory, we think of glory in sort of a cheap, uh, a cheap counterfeit. Meaning we look for glory on a horizontal level from other people. This is one of the reasons why little junior high girls all the way up to mid-30 women can swoon at the feet of someone like Justin Bieber. Like, oh, he's so dreamy, like so amazing, his eyes, his hair, and like, ah, oh, Justin Bieber. But the reality is, is this, all right, as cute as Justin Bieber may be, all right, as good of a singer as you may think he is, the facts of the matter are this, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, all right, there'll be another Justin Bieber imitation or better than Justin Bieber that will come along, will sing better, look cuter, have more swagger than Justin Bieber, and he will be replaced. Justin Bieber will be replaced. So that's one of the reasons why people desire to have affirmation from somebody they view as all glorious. Because you look at Justin Bieber, he's like, oh, he's, he's got glory. He's on the stage. He sparkles. He has got power and luminosity and fame and recognition. And if somehow I can get him to know me, to recognize me, to sign my book, to sign my album, to somehow see me, then I will also, and it goes further and it gets even more deviant in ways. One of the reasons why, why literally the idea of rock stars being sex images as well go hand in hand. Because if you can somehow hook up with a rock star, you've been affirmed by them. It's like the ultimate form of being affirmed by someone who's all glorious. Right? I mean, think this through. This is what it is. But the problem is, is that any form of glory that we seek on a horizontal level in this life has an expiration date on it. It'll fail us. If you don't believe me, watch American Idol and look at Steven Tyler. All right? The dude at one time was all glorious. He may still have some swagger. He may still sing it and bring it and do what he does. But he's just a, in his in his former glory of what he was. He's just a shadow of what he once was. And add another 10 years onto him, he may still look exactly the same, but the point of the matter is, <laughs> all I'm simply trying to say is this, is that people that we look at at one point had great glory, great honor, great fame, everything that we ever dreamed of wanting and longing, it fades away. Everybody's glory fades away. That's why... To somehow seek the glory on a horizontal level from other things that aren't all glorious will end up leaving you crushed and broken. So what we see here in the story is that Jesus are three things that I want to really focus on. I think John, or Mark, I should say, really wants us to identify and understand with regard to Jesus. The three things that I think he wants us to understand about this power and the glory of Jesus is that ultimately, verses 2 to 3, it's sourced in Jesus Secondly, we're going to see that it's centered on Jesus. Thirdly, we're going to see that it's actually surrendered by Jesus. And here's what I mean by that before we jump into all this. Raw power and raw glory doesn't change people. In fact, you'll see here in the story that we just read that the raw power and the raw glory of Jesus when it was revealed actually terrified, terrified Peter and the others. That's all that raw power and glory does. It's one of the reasons why, by the way, we love raw power and glory when it's contained or protected from us. 
That's why we love, right, if you like watching horror movies, you feel safe because there is a television between you and Jason, right? You and the dude with the mask on his face, you and the guy with the hacksaw, you and the guy with the gun. There's a television. You know that there's a safe distance between you and raw power. It's not going to hurt you. But if it came through the screen, you freak out. You drop your bowels because that's what happens. You would absolutely lose it because now you're face to face with raw power and raw glory and you're terrorized by it. Power and glory doesn't change us. But what happens with raw power and raw glory that we see in here in the story does change us. And that's what we'll get to. So the three things that we'll take a look at. First of all is all power and glory is sourced in Jesus. Take a look at verses 2 through 3. We're told this. And he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured, uh, we get the English word metamorphosis from that particular word. Uh, what's really important to note about this is that um, when Jesus goes up on the mountains, uh, on the mountain with his disciples, he's changed. Something happens. He's transfigured. And this is different than being changed from the outside. Um, the word metamorphosis, you're probably familiar with it, obviously, like with the caterpillar that ends up becoming a, a butterfly. Now, what happens with that is that, you know, we've all studied it before, but that little caterpillar is not being changed from the outside. There's not some sort of like weird force on the outside conforming it or changing it or chiseling it or shaping it. it there's, it's being changed from the inside. That little caterpillar has the DNA of a butterfly in it. It has something of the DNA inside of it. So when it goes into the cocoon and it begins to change, something from the inside of it changes it into something absolutely glorious and beautiful. That's the exact same word that's used to describe Jesus here. He is actually being changed. What you're seeing here is his raw power, raw glory, raw, raw beauty coming out of who he is. He's being metamorphosized, being changed from the inside out. And the disciples get to see a snapshot of this, a glimpse of this. Now remember, this is what Jesus always looked like. Some degree of beauty and glory like this throughout all eternity. But he now gives them a little bit of a trailer of what it's going to look like in the future. They give him this snapshot. This isn't the first time this has happened to Jesus. This is maybe the first time this has ever happened to Jesus in this life. So he's given them a little bit of a snapshot of it. But I... I think the emphasis is this, is that it's sourced in Jesus. The next thing we see is that, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. In the story in Sinai, when Moses was summoned up to the mountain, God told Moses, tell all Israel, I'm coming tomorrow, and have all of them wash their clothes. To spend the entire day bathing their clothes, washing their clothes, getting rid of the stains and the soiling and all the dirt stains and blood stains and whatever types, types of stains that are in their clothing, get rid of all of it because I'm showing up tomorrow and they need to have their best clothes on. I'm going to be there tomorrow. And what's interesting about this story is that Jesus doesn't wash his clothes. His clothes are changed. He is gloriously white, brilliantly white. I think it's absolutely imperative to note that one of the byproducts or elements of being changed by Jesus being saved by Jesus, is there's this description in the book of Revelation that the clothes that we're going to be robed in are these same types of bright, brilliant, white clothes indicating your purity, your moral purity before God. Chew on that. Because some of you don't feel morally pure. 
Some of you feel stained. Some of you feel like junk. Some of you feel defiled. Some of you look at your lives and feel as if you're broken. You've soiled yourself. You've stained yourself. You've defecated spiritually, morally upon yourself. And you feel disgusting before God. But the Bible describes that through a work that Jesus does on our behalf, clothes us in the same type of pure white garment that he himself wears. But I think the element that's important that's to be noted here is that what we see here is that all power, all glory is actually sourced in Jesus. It comes from him. So the second thing I think that Mark wants us to see is that it's also centered on Jesus. Verses 4 through 8, take a look at the passages. It says this. It says, and then there appeared to him Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, this is unique that both these guys showed up on that particular day. It's interesting that they automatically knew who they were. I don't know if they had name badges on or what, but they knew who these guys were. They showed up. Uh, what's unique about these guys is both of them had very interesting endings of their lives on this earth. Uh, Elijah was taken up in a flaming chariot. He never died officially. Uh, Moses also has a very unique death story. Uh, there's a lot of uh, stories that go around uh, uh, along with regard to Moses' death. So it's unique that both of these guys show up and they're, here they are with Jesus. And so what takes place or transpires in the story is that Peter then said to Jesus, Rabbi, which means teacher, it's good that we're both here, that we're all here. He says, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I love Peter. And Peter's one of these guys, in a lot of ways, I, honestly, I feel like I relate to. He's one of these guys that when he doesn't know what to say, maybe because he's terrified, he's fearful, he just says something really silly. Right? Like, he says something first, and he thinks later, like, oh, Shouldn't have said that. Like, that didn't come out the way I meant for it to say. He's saying stuff. I always get in trouble afterwards. And like, like I'm sorry happens probably to be part of his vocabulary later on in his life. Does that ever feel like that? Right? Like, you don't know what to say. You just say something because you're like, i got to break the silence. i got to say something. I don't care if it sounds dumb or what. And most of the people in the room are just sitting there looking at it. It's like, why did you, why did you say that? Like, that, that, was, that was offensive. Or that was weird or dumb. Like, why? Like, that's Peter. I love Peter. All right? Um, but Peter was a work in process that Jesus was working in his heart. But Peter says, let's make three tents. And the word for tents is, is not just, you know, something that you pitch and hang out in, but it's a tabernacle. And again, this would have taken you back to Exodus because immediately following uh, Mount Sinai, God gave orders to build a tabernacle, which was to be the place of meeting where God was going to show up, sacrifices were going to be made, sinful people were going to be able to be brought into right relationship with God. And so... I think, and this is, my, this is just my thought, my idea, my speculation, what I think might be going on here, reason why I want to make this point clear, that I think Mark wants us to understand that all power, all glory centers on Jesus, is I think that Mark uh, describes events amongst Peter, James, and John, particularly Peter, that they had this a little bit confused. Um, here's Jesus with Elijah and Moses, radiant, just like Elijah and Moses, beaming with some sense of glory like Elijah and Moses. But the distinction is, is that Moses and Elijah, they are radiant like a mirror radi is, is radiant, meaning it reflects glory. It's reflective glory. Jesus is not reflective glory. Jesus is the source of glory. In other words, Jesus is not on the same common plane as Moses and Elijah. It's really important to know this. Moses was recognized for being sort of the, the leader of the people of Israel. He was the one that delivered the law, the leader of the laws. And uh, Elijah was kind of identified as the greatest of the prophets. 
So the greatest of the law, the greatest of the prophets are there. And both of them are radiant. Both of them are glorious because they've been changed. But here they are with Jesus. And I think Peter thinks, ah, let's build tabernacles for all of you guys. And this is awesome. And I think maybe, this again, this is where my speculation is. You've got to check this out for yourself. But I think Peter may have thought that you guys are all the same. You all led people back to God. And you guys are voices pointing people back to God. And here's what I think the distinction is, is the reason what goes on next in verse 7. It says, and then a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came from the cloud. And again, very reminiscent of Exodus when God spoke, a cloud came, shadow came. Uh, oftentimes the Jews would describe this as the Shekinah glory, the Shekinah glory of God. And it came and it overshadowed, and out of this cloud they hear a voice speak. And here's what the voice says. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only. And I think Perhaps why this happened or why this took place is that this is God's answer to, is Jesus just like Moses and Elijah, just more modern? I think God's answer to that is no. Jesus is not just like Moses and Elijah. He's not just another prophet pointing people back to God. He's different. He's not just someone who's come to say, hey, I'll show you the path to God. He's one who has come who says, I am the path to God. I am the glory of God. I am the source of all beauty, the source of all glory. This is what I hope and I pray that you see. All elements of beauty and life and joy that all of us are pursuing in this life are all sourced in Jesus. That's what I hope and pray you see. I say this to my girls all the time. I pray this for my daughters all the time. This is what I want them to see more than anything is that every bit of beauty, every bit of things in this life, in this world that we love, that we enjoy, that are pure and good, that are in this world, all the colors we participate in and delight in and music that we love, all of these things are sort of trailers of the final grand symphony that is God himself. And if you're settling for the substitute, if you're settling for just simply a stream Go back to the source. The source is where ultimate satisfaction is going to be found. And that's exactly what I think Mark is communicating to us in this story. That Jesus is not just on par with prophets, on par with the great leaders of the past. He's altogether in a different category. He is God himself. Who's come. He's the source of all beauty. The final thing I want to take a look at is that all power and all glory ultimately is surrendered by Jesus, and I might want to add, willingly. I said earlier, raw power, raw glory, put on display doesn't change you. It either makes you terrified because you're afraid of being in the presence of something that you don't have any control over. It's unpredictable. It could be a storm if you've ever been on an airplane and all of a sudden turbulence has overtaken your jet and you feel powerless. You feel like you're going to die. Or you've been in some sort of a life-threatening circumstance or situation. This happened to me a few times. One time I can remember I was surfing. Big wave came. Duck dived underneath it. And I just got sucked up over the falls and just I, I wasn't coming up for air. I didn't know where I was at because you're like in a just 
a tunnel of just water, and you feel this absolute weightiness of something that's bigger, greater, stronger than you. You're powerless. You're literally at its mercy. And at one point, I was just was like, I don't think I'm going any. I'm not going to go up. The last minute, when I thought it was over, I came out. And I was, I'm like, I'm alive. This is great. I want to get to the back outside to the waves. All right. The point of the matter is, is that there's something about raw power that really doesn't change us. But what raw power does change us, change us in the context of the story here. And that's what we see as the dialogue goes on. Because I don't think the point of Mark telling us this story is to just simply say, wow, look at Jesus. He's transfigured. He's all glorious, all powerful. Isn't that great? I don't think that's the point. Because if that was just simply the end of it all, none of us would be changed. None of us would walk away from that and be like, ah, oh, I want to love my neighbor more. Like, that, that doesn't change us. That just causes us to either feel terrified or think, I can never get to that level, so therefore I'm just a hideous Christian. But it's what this raw power and glory does next that Jesus unfolds for us that has the ability and power to change us. And here's what he says. And then he says in verse 9, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead might mean. Again, these guys had no idea what about was to happen. I've been saying this all along. That in the eyes and the minds of the disciples, a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. In their mind, and according to their theological understanding as to what the Messiah is to do, the Messiah is going to come and overthrow all of Rome and somehow push back the wicked forces of evil and darkness and injustice and somehow liberate the people of Israel and become sort of a, a nation of greatness. And Jesus basically is saying, you're partially correct because I will fight a battle. I will conquer evil, I will destroy injustice, and I will bring judgment. Judgment will come, but judgment won't come the way you expected. The evil that will be conquered will not be the evil you expected. Things will be done in a way that you do not understand because the Son of Man will die. But he will rise again. They don't get it. They just don't get it. Verse 12, it says, and he said to them, Elisha, and they asked the question, I should say, verse 11, and then they asked him, what do the scribes say, well, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? I love this about the disciples again. These guys don't really know what to say. They're like, hmm, uh, resurrection, we don't get it, we don't understand it, we're not really sure what he's talking about. Let's talk theology on a totally different subject. And I love this because sometimes this is the way some people can be. They're like, rather than dealing with the real issues at heart, the real issues at play, they still want to talk theology. They want to talk about Bible verses. They want to talk about theological matter. That's completely irrelevant, irrelevant to their heart. And so Jesus entertains them briefly. And here's what he goes on to say. He says, um, Elisha does come first to restore all things. And how is it written? And now Jesus entirely changes the subject. And he asks them a theological question about the Son of Man, which is, again, we've already seen a reference to himself. How is it the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and that they did to him whatever has pleased of whatever they pleased, and is as it is written of him. Most scholars would agree that what Jesus is doing is sort of speaking metaphorically that Elijah has come in the form of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, there was this tradition that they believed, not with John the Baptist, but with Elijah, that one day Elijah would come prior to, sort of as a precursor to, the Messiah out of the prophet of Malachi. And so what Jesus is saying is that, yes, sure, he did come. And John the Baptist, uh, they did to him whatever they wanted. They killed him. They beheaded him. Uh, he did come as a forerunner to me. He announced my coming. 
And so what Jesus does, and I think the main emphasis I want to wrap this up on, is that Jesus focuses on what the Son of Man will do with all of his power and all of his glory. Coming down from this mountain where they've seen, put on display, the Son of Man with all power, all glory, Jesus comes down off of the mountain, begins to have this close, intimate dialogue with his disciples, as if to say, you want to know what the Son of Man will do with all power and all glory that belongs to him rightly? Is he will willfully lay it down. What's the opposite of power and glory? Weakness and shame. Jesus basically is saying, here's what will happen. I, the Son of Man, will go to Jerusalem and I will bear the cross. I will be made weak. I will be made shameful for a purpose. And again, Mark writes in a way where he wants us to keep asking the question, why? Why would the only one who has all power, all glory, why would the only one who has any rightful claim to all power and glory give it up? I mean, think about this. If you had the ability to have anything in this life, wouldn't you want power and glory? Some of you might be like, I want money. But why do you want money? You want money so that you can buy things so that people can affirm you. That's glory. Money is just your savior. It's your functional savior to get you to your God, which we want desperately to be affirmed. We want desperately to be approved, to be recognized, to be acknowledged by somebody. We do anything to get approval. We do anything to get glory, to get somehow recognition, to have power. And when we lose power, what happens? We freak out. That's why one of the reasons why some of you, some of us can maybe become violent, get angry, you get sort of just compulsive. The reason why you become compulsive is because you are feeling as if you are losing control. And so in those moments of absolute despair, you start controlling and organizing and taking everything and lining your toothbrushes up and making sure the little tassels on the carpet are all lined up. It's your only way to control what you know you have no control over. You're not powerful. And you know it. You don't have glory, and you know it. If you're really honest with yourself, all we know is weakness and shame all the time. And we try desperately to cover it up. We try desperately, any measure we can, to hide it, to veil it, because we're ashamed of it. And what you need to see, Mark is trying to take us on the story, is the one who has the only rightful claim to all power and all glory, willfully laying it aside to take upon himself shame, vulnerability, and weakness. Why? Isaiah answers that question. I want to read it to you. Take a look at the next verse. Listen carefully to what Isaiah has to say, because I think Jesus makes allusion to him. He says this, he, that is the Son of Man, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, he was acquainted with grief. He, the Son of Man, has borne our griefs. Notice the way this changes. It's not bearing his griefs. He's bearing our griefs, carried our sorrows. 
pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. And we like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. Yet we have turned every one to his own way. And yet the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. For my servant shall make many to be accounted righteous. For he shall bear their iniquities. What you need to see today is that God has provided a way to free you from your shame, to free you from your powerlessness, to free you from your brokenness, to give you life. And the way that he has done that is Jesus came, the only one who has all power and all glory, humbly, lovingly, willfully laid it down and instead exchanged it. Didn't just lay it down and walked away from it. He actually laid it down and then picked up your shame, your brokenness, your sense of loneliness, bore it upon himself. And on the cross, we're told he was crushed. Why? All of us are on a trajectory. Our path, our life have a, has a path. All of us. The gods that we worship, the things that we focus our hearts on, the things that we make as our ultimate heart desires will lead us on a path. At some point, they themselves will let us down. You all know this. We've all endured heartbreak. Every one of us, at some point in our life, fell in love with somebody and they crushed us because they didn't love us back the way that we wanted them to. They didn't show us kindness or friendship back. It might have been through a divorce. It might have been just through a you know, teenage breakup. It might have been through something. But somebody you've given your heart to and they stamped upon it. That's a crushing. But there's another layer to that because we live in regular offense against God because we are not just victims upon which we've been crushed. We are agents of rebellion. Where we've turned away from our God who created us in his image, who created us for his pleasure. And what God has done in sending his son was that he was crushed for us, bore our shame, bore our weakness, so that we who trust confidently in what he's done can have our shame taken away and be given life. That's what he's done for us. I want to finish by reading to you a passage from C.S. Lewis, because I think he says it great. Again, here's what he says in talking about this. He says, in the end, in the end, the face which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. It is written that we shall stand before him and be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ. That some of us shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real, age, or to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not just merely pitied, but delighted as in as an artist delights in his work, or as a father in the son, it seems impossible. Weight of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But it is so. Think about that. What would it look like? 
to finally have an opinion about you that affirms you, that loves you, not for something you've done, but in spite of all that you've done, in spite of who you are and the life you've lived in the past and the choices and the decisions you've made that have left you crushed and broken and defiled and sinful and full of shame, what would it look like to actually have all of that changed and exchanged for honor, delight, love? C.S. Lewis says, that's true. That's the hope found in the gospel. If you don't believe Lewis's words, listen to Jesus's. Here's what he says in John 17, verse 23. I want to read this to you great passage if I can find it do we have it up here I'll read it the glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one I and them you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me here's what Jesus is saying father reveal to them that you have conferred love upon them in the same way that you've conferred love upon me. How much does the Father love Jesus, his Son, with glory inexplicable? This is why Jesus can stand there and be radiant and beam and be glorified. How much does God love his people who have sinned against him, who have defiled their lives, who have stained their garments, How much does God confer love upon them who trust in his son with the same love that God confers upon his son? Here's the reality. To the degree that you believe that, to the degree that you believe that Jesus bore your shame, literally bore your shame, bore your weakness, and took the penalty that you alone deserve, and in exchange has given you his life, and has conferred upon you his favor, his approval, his glory, that will make you radiant. That will change you. That will cause you, it will free you from stopping your endless pursuit of trying to find approval by your boss or by your husband or through some other type of channel or some other means or your peer group. It will free you. You don't need to have their approval anymore. You have the approval of the only true opinion in all the universe that only matters. He loves you. And he demonstrated his love to you in that his own son bore what you alone deserve. This is the good news, that we have a king. He brought judgment, but judgment didn't come upon us who we thought would have deserved it. His judgment came upon himself. He bore our sin. He was judged for us so that we can be set free. I want to finish with this. I'm going to have Trav come on up, and we're going to close. I want you to just listen to this little passage. Again, C.S. Lewis writes in this great little book called The Weight of Glory. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It, was only, it only came through them. And what, that, what came through them was longing. In other words, he's saying is oftentimes we're looking for glory. We're looking for some sort of substance, something that substantially satisfies. So we turn to music, we turn to movies, we turn to friendships and relationships, but we never really find it. All that we really have that keeps coming back to us is longing. We realize the more that we get of this, the more we want of it. And yet we're never really satisfied. 
And he goes on to say that these things, the beauty, the memory of your past or nostalgia, the good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they will turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. And that's where maybe some of you are at. Your hearts have been broken and crushed. Perhaps because you've been worshiping a false god. You've been seeking affirmation. You've been seeking glory from something else that has no power to give you glory. It doesn't have the ability to do it. And he goes on to say, he says, for they are not the thing itself. They are, not the, they, they are only the scent of the flower that we have not yet found. They're the echo of the tune that we have not yet heard. They're the news from a country that we have never yet visited. Do you think that I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments. And you and I have a need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which we which has been laid upon us for many, many years. The only thing that will set you free, that will break that spell the way C.S. Lewis describes it, that will pry your fingers off of these false gods that you're hoping somehow they'll affirm you, they'll give you glory, they'll satisfy you, they'll make you happy, they will complete you, they will bring you the life that you're hoping to have. The only thing that will set you free is for you to be brought in to the orbit of the glory something of the glory of something greater the true glory of Jesus that's the only thing that will set you free and as you find that as you are brought into that that will change you that has the power to change you raw power does not have the power to change you raw power that willfully lovingly humbly lays itself down in order to save you save you will change you. The degree to which you believe that will be changed. This can't be theory, guys. This can't be just some sort of objective, theological, techn technical idea that you believe. This has to become subjective. This has to become experienced in your life for it to change you. Pray that it does. Let's turn off the lights right now, and I want to finish. I want to pray. But what I want to do right now is I want to ask if there's any here right now that in this room, you look at your life. Maybe you're a Christian, and you feel as if you have been under the spell, to use C.S. Lewis's languages, language, to be under the spell of something other than the God that sets you free, and you've been broken. You've been crushed. Or to even say if you're here and you're not a Christian, and that applies to you as well, but you want to come to Jesus, you want to trust Jesus today, you want to be washed, you want to be cleansed, you want to place your confidence in what he's done for you so that you'd be truly free. If that's you, I just want to pray for you. Would you just stand up right where you're at? This is always hard, I realize, but we're a family. We love you guys. We're a church that cares about you. We're a family that wants to rally around, gather around those that find themselves in this place. For some of you, this might not really apply. For others of you, your heart's just thumping. You know this is you. This describes you. You might even feel glued in your seat right now. You're like, I gotta get up. I gotta get up. I don't want to get up. I don't want to get up. You need to just somehow take that plunge, man, and just in that instantaneous moment, just break that stronghold and just stand. Let Jesus deliver you. Let Jesus set you free. He wants to set you free. 
He wants to open your eyes to his beauty, to his glory, to his greatness, his power, his redemptive power that can change you and set you free, make you a new person. Anybody else? Just stand up right where you're at. All I want to do is pray for you. Thanks, guys, for standing. I know it's tough. It's tough. We're family here. No one's going to judge you. We just want to love on you and pray for you. Anybody else? Just stand right where you're at. There might be some more. Just stand right where you're at. We're going to pray for you. If you're sitting down next to someone, right on, man. Keep standing. If that's you, just keep standing. Just keep standing while I'm talking. If you're uh, sitting down next to someone who's standing, would you mind just laying hands, reaching out and laying hands on these people that are standing? Just laying hands on them. You might need to stand up and do that. Make sure that everybody who's standing has someone laying hands on them. The reason why we're doing this is because it's a way for us to say that you're family. We love you. We're not ashamed of you. In fact, we're proud to call you brother, sister, because that's what Jesus has done for us. He's called us his own. He's conferred love and grace and kindness and affection upon us because he can, because he bore our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised for our transgressions. So therefore, we can be free to love other people that are hurting and broken. I'm going to pray for you. We're going to sing a song to close take of communion. You're more than welcome to meet with Jesus and partake of communion. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you to, to not partake, but to receive Jesus as your Savior, to trust in Him. You can partake as you just recognize by faith and repentance what Jesus has done. Trust in Him and remember by partaking the communion. I'll say, dismiss you guys. I'm going to pray right now. Make sure everybody has a hand on them to pray. Jesus, right now, just pray for these that are standing, that you would set them free and deliver them and Cause them to realize, Father, that because of Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross, you're not ashamed of them. You love them. You confer the same amount, same type of love upon them that you confer upon your own beloved Son. God, I pray that they would see how greatly beloved they are by you. And the only reason why they can be loved to the degree that they are is because Jesus paid the price for them that they couldn't pay. God, set them free from shame that binds them. Set them free from the sinful proclivities that are there in their hearts. Set them free from the feeling of trying to have to be right by trying to be religious. Set them free from all of these things, God, and help them just to see that because of what Jesus did, they can never add to that. They can only trust it and be changed.